0: One of the many ways of practicing mindfulness meditation is called six sense noting. This practice takes the, the five senses that many of us here in the West learned growing up, so sight and sound and smell and taste and, and touch, and adds a sixth sense of thinking or mind, recognized in many Eastern worldviews. So if you wanted to practice uh, sixth sense noting, the instruction is to just notice, to kind of do what we did at the beginning of the service. What's, what's happening with me in real time? So to notice in the arising and passing away of each present moment, what is most prominent in your experience? Is it seeing, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, or thinking? And just, and just note it, kind of one after the other. You might note touching seeing, thinking, feeling. In Buddhism, this, this list of six is sometimes described as the six sense gates. The theory is that anything we humans are capable of experiencing, it has to come in through one of those six sense gates. How else would we be aware of it? If we perceive something, it is because we see it, or we hear it, or we smell it, or we taste it, or we touch it, or we think it. How else would something come into our awareness. If we were to update this traditional practice of six sense noting in light of modern science, we'd actually have to expand it to eight sense uh, noting, because scientists tell us there are actually two additional separate senses. Our sense of balance, that's actually a, a separate sense. Also, our awareness of our body that is distinct from touch. We sometimes talk about mindfulness, heartfulness and bodyfulness, are what the fancy word for this is proprioception, so your kind of awareness of your body. That actually is also a separate sense. It's also important to know that when we start to compare with other, these sort of interspecies relationships, right, uh, we start to see that animals' senses don't always fit neatly. Sometimes they're kind of overlapping. They don't fit neatly into those eight categories we've been exploring. And this insight begins to point us in the direction that I want to invite us to explore this morning. On the one hand, our human senses give us access to really incredible sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and balances and body awarenesses uh, that range from the spectacular to the mundane to the sometimes devastating. We can think of the recent, um, if you've been watching the news, everything coming out with Hurricane Ian, right, all that devastation. There's so much for us to experience through our senses. On the other hand, we humans are also increasingly aware that there are manifold aspects to reality that are, not, uh, that are not available to our direct perception. And as a guide to that fascinating world beyond our human sense gates, I recently had the pleasure of reading a book published a few months ago titled An Immense World. How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Worlds Around Us. It's by Ed Yong. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer. He's on staff of The Atlantic. And really, I found this book riveting. Uh, it makes me want to go back and read his award-winning first book um, from a few years ago titled, I Contain Multitudes. It's about the microbes within us and, and a kind of grander view of life. Uh, I, I actually really love a clear lucid science writer. Uh, and I, brought, I bought two books as background research for this sermon, and I read the introduction to both, and it was just immediately clear that Young's book was better. It just, it, it just popped. It just sparkled. And the other one I read a little bit more, and I didn't even finish it. There's just too many great books to read, and Young's was clearly uh, superior. Uh, to begin exploring beyond the boundaries of our human senses, consider this thought experiment from the beginning of Young's book. Imagine that you are alone in, or the, the lone human being in this sanctuary, so whew, everyone else is gone. It's just you. But for some odd confluence of reasons, there's a menagerie of other creatures in this sanctuary along with you. There's an elephant over beside Stephen in the, in the choir loft. There's a mouse scurrying under the chairs. There's a robin perched right here on the pulpit. There's an owl in one of these overhead beams, and beside it, a bat hanging upside down. There's also a rattlesnake slithering on the floor, a spider up in one, you know, we'll call it it Spider Charlotte, right, up in that uh, high corner. There's a mosquito buzzing around as well as a bee. Now, I know this is an improbable scenario, but stick with me. The point is I want us to begin to consider the different ways, the different sense gates these different animals have and how they would perceive this very same room in quite different ways. Let's start with the mosquito. That mosquito's sense of smell would be picking up on your carbon dioxide as well as the scent of your human skin, and it would be drawn over to you. And if that uh, mosquito landed on your arm, your slap would be most likely to startle the mouse. And that mouse's squeak of alarm would be at a pitch too high for the elephant to hear, but it would be audible to the bat. Now, if that elephant did let out a rumble, that would be too low-pitched for the mouse or the bat to hear, but the snake would feel the vibrations down on the ground. We humans would be unable to sense either the full ultrasonic level of the mouse's squeak or the infrasonic rumble of the elephant. We would instead notice the robin's bird song. But even there, our hearing is too slow to hear the full complexity of that bird song. And speaking of the robin, that bird's chest would look red to us, but not to the elephant. The elephant can only see blue and yellow. Similarly, the bee would be really drawn to the flowers if we had them outside the window. It would be drawn to the ultra, ultraviolet aspects that are invisible to us. We think we know what flowers look like, but to the bees, they're most focused on ultra, ultraviolet think, hues that we can't see. The spider wouldn't care about any of this until that mosquito landed on its web and vibrated it, causing it to strike. But the spider would be oblivious that the bat was hitting it with sonar allowing it to find it and precisely eat that spider. Also, since the days are getting colder, only the robin among all those animals in the room would be sensing the shifts in the Earth's magnetic field beginning to lure it south for the winter. These examples are only a small sample of the ways that diverse beings perceive the same reality differently. The scientific term for this phenomenon comes from a German word, Umwelt, U-M-W-E-L-T, so um and then velt, like the word for world. It literally means environment, but in science it's come to have the connotation of a being's perceptual world. What is your perceptual world? And as illustrated by our thought experiment, each animal, including us humans, are really in kind of a sensory bubble that we're not fully aware aware of. Our senses allow us to perceive certain aspects of what is happening while remaining oblivious to other aspects. Jung writes that for every sentient being, our umwelt, our perceptual world, it feels all-encompassing. It, it seems like all we, it, it is all we know, and we can therefore mistakenly think it's all there is to know. Even if we limit our sample size to our own species of homo sapiens, we do not all experience the world in the same way. I'll give you just three prominent examples. Up to 8% of men and uh, more like 0.5% of women have what is called color vision deficiency, what used to be called uh, color blindness, meaning they perceive red and green as the same color. So We're not seeing the world the same. Or like, I think cilantro is delicious, but anybody, does anybody here taste, uh, does cilantro taste like soap? Yeah? It's a thing, right? Four to 14% of humans think cilantro tastes like soap, or it, it does taste like soap to them, right? Uh, I'll also say that body odor, not my favorite scent, but to some people, body odor smells like vanilla. Reality is wild, y'all. And if we start to break it down into the physics of it all, light is just electromagnetic radiation. Sound, it's just waves of pressure. Smell is just small molecules. And the variations of our sense gates across different animals and even within humans, it, ex- it affects and impacts the extent and the way in which we experience and interpret and uh, interact with these physical sensations. Young's books has chapters exploring how animals explore uh, experience the world differently in terms of smells tastes, light color pain heat contact flow vibration sound echoes electric fields magnetic fields and more and for our purposes we're just going to be able to explore a few representative examples but but do check out Young's book if this sounds interesting to you let's start with a fun one does anyone regularly walk a dog any any dog walkers out here? Alright. Uh, have you ever heard the saying that we humans like to take our dogs out for walks, you know, to get our steps in, to see the world. But dogs actually want to be taken out for smells. Right? <laughs> If you ever spend much time walking a dog, this truth becomes quickly obvious. You're really usually just barely starting out, and all of a sudden, like, you get, you get pulled back because that dog has stopped dead in its tracks, and it is just sniffing. You know, it got its nose stuck in some object and is sniffing intensely and at great length. And here's some of why this happens. If we, if you take in a deep breath with me right now, so just kind of You're taking in oxygen and you're also taking in smells, hopefully not too bad of smells, right? (laughs) Uh, uh, Something similar happens with a dog with one important difference. Dogs have this separate little tributary just for smells, so that some of every inhale goes in this separate little uh, tributary. And when we exhale, we tend to expel pretty much all those little molecules of smell. Uh, but for dogs, those odorants, they stay in that tributary, and every time they're smelling, it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. That's why they keep smelling. Depending on the breed, dogs have a sense of smell that's somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 times stronger than our human 10,000 and 100 times better than humans. And various scientific experiments have um, demonstrated that dogs have the ability to tell identical twins apart by smell. They can detect, this is really impressive, a single fingerprint that has been dabbed onto a microscope slide, left on a rooftop, and exposed to the elements for a week. And they can still detect the smell. They've been trained to detect bombs, drugs, landmines, missing people, bodies, smuggled cash, truffles, uh, invasive weeds, agricultural diseases, as well as like... Um, low blood sugar and tumors in humans, uh, bed bugs, oil pipeline leaks, and more. And even though we humans um, share a sense of smell with dogs, their sense gate for smelling is just tremendously wider and deeper than ours. And the more I learn about the canine sense of smell, the more patient I am in walking my dogs. Now, there's still time when I'm like, all right, I got to go, I got an appointment, you know, come on. Uh, but when I have time, I, I'm a lot more patient, and I try to give them more opportunities to just smell to their heart's content before we, we move on. I'll give you just one example. I was wa- down in downtown Frederick walking my dog, as many of you see me all the time, right? I'm doing that every day. Uh, we were walking past uh, 15 West Church Street, so Evangelical Reformed United Church of Christ, and there, my dog's about 55 pounds, and there's a, a pillar, and there was just a piece of bread, not like meat or anything, but just walking by, my dog smelled that bread and he was just up on his paw. He couldn't get to it but he knew that bread just walking by. Just a just a piece of bread. He wanted that bread. Uh, and although dogs tend to be of special interest to many of us who have them as pets or we are their human companions, many other animals, uh, rats and pigs and elephants, all are incredible smellers. Elephants often won't even turn their heads if they hear something. They just turn and Turn their trunk and smell. You know what's up. Or did any of you see the twenty twenty uh, the twenty twenty one film um, Pig with Nicolas Cage? Has anybody seen that? It is it is on stream. It's on Hulu. It's also on Canopy. I don't know if any of you know. You all have free access to Canopy through the public library. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff filming there. It's about Nicolas Cage as a truffle hunter in the Oregon wilderness and his pet pig and all that kind of follows. It's a really really fascinating film called Pig. I should also mention that while we will never rival uh, elephants and dogs and rats uh, and pigs in a smelling contest, we're just not even in the same league. We humans can get, become better at smelling with practice. So if it's something you really want to do, you can actually, you know, really, you can, you can get better at it. Now, since we started with how inferior our human sense of smell is compared to other animals, let's shift our focus to a sense in which we are near the top of the pack, sight. Now, there are some animals like eagles and other birds of prey that do have a substantially sharper vision than we do. In general, compared to most other animals, we humans have formidable visual acuity. Ironically, though, there's actually a shadow side to having great eyesight. Here again, our human visual capacity often biases us to assuming that what is eye-catching to us must, of course, be eye-catching to all other creatures, and it's often not so. It's another place where our umwelt, our uh, perceptual world, our sensory bubble can limit our appreciation for the alternative ways of appreciating the same reality. So even though we switched from smell to sight, let's stick with dogs just for a second. Has anybody ever heard that dogs are colorblind? I definitely heard that um, growing up. It turns out that's a myth. Dogs do see color, they just don't see the same range that we see. They see mostly in shades of blue and yellow and gray. More generally, and this is where things start to get trippy, color is fundamentally subjective right? It's not, uh, there is nothing inherently green about a blade of grass or the 550 nanometer um, light that is reflected by it. So much depends on the particularities of the light receptor that's uh, receiving those wavelengths. As one vision scientist famously quipped, it turns out that for a blue whale, the ocean is not blue, right? Like, So here's another example. If you've ever been to a horse race, obstacles are often painted orange. To us humans, that particular wavelength of electromagnetic uh, electromagnetic radiation tends to stand out. But humans, I mean for horses, orange tends to blend into the background. So if we wanted to pick a horse-sensitive color, we would actually paint it fluorescent yellow or bright blue or white. There's so much more to say about all of this, but I hope that even this brief tour of the senses is leaving the world a little less familiar and maybe a little more interesting than when we started. Uh, The 20th century French novelist uh, Marcel Proust said it this way, A true voyage of discovery would not be to merely visit strange lands. It would be to possess other eyes to behold the universe through the eyes of another or even a hundred others, to behold a hundred universes that each of them beholds, that each of them is, right, because it is their umwelt inside their sensory bubble, their perceptual world. Similarly, the contemporary philosopher Thomas Nagel uh, wrote a famous essay called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? A little bat hanging up there, right? He was interested in the question not of what would it be like for we humans to be a bat, not if we had bat-like abilities, not if we had electrolocation the ability to fly, no. His question was the much more elusive and difficult and subjective experience of what is it like for a bat to be a bat, right, not for a human to be a bat. Nagel had to ultimately confess, if I try to imagine this, I am restricted to the resources of my own mind, and those resources are inadequate. To the task. I think Nagel's right about those ultimate limitations. Nevertheless, I appreciate that scientists continue to try to push the boundaries on what we can learn about reality beyond our usual human senses. For now, I'll give the final words uh, to Ed Yong from his book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. He writes, We may never know what it is to be an octopus— But at least we know that octopuses exist, right? And that their experience differs from ours. And through patient observation, through the technology at our disposal, through the scientific method, and above all else, through our curiosity and through our imagination, we can try to step into their worlds. We must, though, choose to do so. And to have that choice is a gift. It is not a blessing that we have earned, but it is one that we may cherish.